All views and opinions expressed in this podcast may lead to learning. All information provided is for educational and developmental purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for a growth mindset. Before taking action, please consult your motivation. This is the Teacher Talking Time podcast. Learners are very positive. They are overwhelmingly supportive of corrective feedback. All, nearly all of them, 90% of learners wanted to receive feedback, although teachers are reluctant to provide feedback compared with learners. Pedagogical decisions should be based on research, not teachers' personal assumptions. So for example, if research has demonstrated that feedback is effective and feedback can be an alternative to traditional grammar instruction, then we should do it, right? We, we should provide feedback. I mean, I can't just say, oh, I'm, I just, I don't like it. Um, that's my personal opinion, right? So if there's a disparity between teachers' beliefs or assumptions and students' expectations, there may be a consequence in terms of, in terms of learning gains. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Teacher Talking Time podcast brought to you by Learn Your English. To those of you who are new listening to this podcast for the first time, the main aim of our podcast is to really deconstruct language teaching to bridge the gap between research and personal practice. Each episode is dedicated to our vision of education, continuous growth that is accessible, affordable, and appropriate to your context. Andrew. We also have a membership, don't we? We absolutely do. Our Learn Your English Teacher Development Membership, where you can join a community of curious teachers and educators who want to achieve more without having to plan and teach more. Leo, you like to say, teach more mindfully, right? That's right. And that's what we try to do with our membership. We try to provide content, mentoring, courses, and more importantly, a community, a community of practice to help teachers plan less so they can actually have time to develop more. And what we focus on, Andrew, mindful and meaningful teaching, better thinking, continuous learning, developing a healthy mind, purposeful creativity, mental tools for thought, and humanistic education. Andrew, if somebody wants to become a member, what do they have to do? Oh, so simple. Just go to courses.learnyourenglish.net and become a member right there. You'll have access to all of our materials, not only for this month, but for all the months that you missed in the past. If you want more information, check out learnyourenglish.net slash memberships. We are thrilled to announce our partnership with Carleton University in Ottawa, Canada for this podcast series on corrective feedback. A big thank you to Dr. Eva Karchava and her MA class to produce this interview series, which we know will be a fantastic analysis of corrective feedback and its role in language learning and teaching. This series has eight episodes focusing on aspects of corrective feedback. Corrective feedback is a crucial area of second language acquisition and there has been a lot of research done recently to shed light on the role it plays in student learning. Seven of the interviews in this series were conducted by students in Dr. Karchava's MA class as means of assessment to do two primary things. Number one, to connect researchers to their audience, and number two, to have her students have a greater level of understanding and investment in the research they were reading. That's right, Leo, and we're excited to provide an outlet for this project and to give not only new voices an opportunity to be heard, but to allow for new podcasting experiences for many. If you or your institution is interested in producing a mini-series, either as a means of assessment or otherwise, please reach out to us at info at learnyourenglish.com. 
Dr. Xiaofeng Li is a prominent scholar and award-winning researcher of second language acquisition with a focus on corrective feedback. He is currently an associate professor in the School of Teacher Education at Florida State University. Prior to that, he was a senior lecturer in the Department of Implied Language Studies at Auckland University. He has an extensive list of published works on areas such as corrective feedback, task-based language learning and teaching, cognitive variables of second language learning, second language learner beliefs and motivations, and much more. More recently, Dr. Lee has a number of upcoming published works focusing more specifically on associations between anxiety, working memory, and corrective feedback timing. Dr. Lee joins us today to discuss all of that and much more. This interview was conducted by Abdi Muhammad and Neil Power. With all of that said, let's get on with the show. So thank you, Dr. Lee, by the way, for uh, doing this interview with us. I know we're taking a bit of your time. Uh, thanks a lot. Really appreciate it. Uh, to begin, can you tell us more about your journey and how you came to research second language acquisition? And more specifically, corrective feedback, if you don't mind. Mm -hmm. Sure. Um, thank you for the opportunity to share my research, my ideas about the corrective feedback, which is one of my um, the major areas of my research. Um, so to start with, I got interested in corrective feedback when I was a PhD student. Um, my supervisor is Professor Susan Gass. Um, her major uh, expertise or area of research is in second language interaction. Uh, and one of the components of interaction, of course, is corrective feedback. Um, so I took a course with her and then um, corrective feedback figured as a, uh, a prominent topic, not only in that class, but in several classes I took when I was a PhD student. Um, I feel that um, feedback was a major topic of the field in the early 2000s. It's still um, a current topic, um, but I feel the field is more diversified at the moment. Uh, yeah, um, my point is feedback was a major topic of the field and it was a major theme of articles, journal articles published in top journals, SSLA, MLJ, language learning, et cetera, et cetera. It was also a major topic of top conferences in the field. I remember once um, Dr. Gass asked me, asked us to, to observe some themes that emerged from the program of L, and we found that one of the major themes was recasts. Then um, I did my, um, I did two qualifying papers uh, before I started to write my dissertation. I did an experimental study for the first qualifying paper, and then I conducted a meta-analysis on corrective feedback uh, as my second qualifying paper. So by the time I started to work on my dissertation project, I was very um, knowledgeable about the corrective feedback, and so I developed a a larger scale project looking at the constraining factors of the effectiveness of corrective feedback, including learner's proficiency, the target structure, and uh, cognitive variables such as working memory and language aptitude. Throughout my career, I have conducted a number of empirical studies on feedback. I have also been asked to or invited to write uh, synthetic reviews on corrective feedback. Um, I did um, meta-analysis on uh, beliefs, learner and teacher's beliefs about the corrective feedback. I also uh, wrote a chapter on feedback methodology. So um, that's my style. I, I think it's because um, I'm a meta-analyst. Um, whenever I synthesize something I mean, research on a certain topic, um, I tend to collate all the information, all the available information. Um, I don't want to miss anything. So um, I think my synthesis is quite comprehensive and objective. Uh, I don't have a particular position or I'm not in favor of any particular theoretical um, perspective. So I um, always take an, an inductive approach, trying to show the big picture, the objective picture, what has 
happening in the field. Yeah, that's, that's pretty much an overview of my um, research or um, um, corrective feedback. Oh, okay, that, that's great. Thank you. You do have uh, a unique perspective on corrective feedback, and I'm, I'm interested because you said you don't really favor any particular theoretical background. But what I'm wondering about is how your beliefs on corrective feedback evolved from when you were a second language learner to now that you're a researcher in corrective feedback. How have they changed? If, if at all. Yeah, definitely. Um, so before I became a researcher, um, I understood feedback as error correction. Right? I think as most people agree, like feedback is equal, I mean, it's equated with error correction. So I thought the only way to correct errors is by telling someone something's wrong um, or something someone said is wrong and then provide the correct form. And after I became a researcher, I figured there are so many ways to respond to errors and they're all called correctly feedback and different kinds of feedback make a difference in um, how um, feedback influences learning. And I think one of the biggest difference between the learner, I mean, between my past self before I became um, a researcher and my present self as a researcher is that I um, make arguments or talk about things based on uh, research evidence instead of making assumptions. And this is also something I preach in my all the classes I teach, including uh, graduate and undergraduate classes. And so um, language learning is science and um, teachers have to make decisions based on research instead of their uh, personal experiences and assumptions. So um, I think that's really crucial, uh, something I have learned as a researcher. I mean, I can't make arbitrary statements about whether something or um, a certain feedback is effective or more effective than other kinds of feedback. I mean, whatever I say, um, I have to have evidence. Just as an aside, when you were a learner, what, how did you feel about uh, corrective feedback? Did you like being corrected? Did, you, did it make mm -hmm. you nervous? I think so. I think like most learners, um, I have to draw on evidence when I talk about, when I um, make a statement. So based on my meta-analysis or research synthesis on uh, learner beliefs and corrective feedback, and learners are very positive. They are overwhelmingly supportive of corrective feedback. All of, nearly all of them, 90% of learners wanted to receive feedback. Um, I think I would have been one of them, although I forgot what I, how I felt. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so yeah, um, I, I think from a learner's perspective, we all want to receive feedback. Actually, um, I'm also interested in written feedback and um, according to some, some research, for example, the um, studies done by IC Lee in Hong Kong, feedback, um, not only learners, but, but also all other stakeholders like parents, school managers, I mean, um, uh, school principals. Uh, so everybody wants feedback, wants teachers to provide feedback. And if um, teachers don't provide feedback, and they will let down a lot of people. And um, it, it can be, um, I guess, in some contexts, whether to provide feedback or not is one of the criteria to evaluate teachers' job performance. Hmm. Um, so, um, in a nutshell, so I guess learners, including me, um, like to receive feedback, although teachers are reluctant to provide feedback compared with learners. I guess they have concerns, so you such as like having uh, providing feedback may have a harmful effect on um, students' motivation. Yeah, I was going to ask, uh, you mentioned that teachers are reluctant uh, to provide corrective feedback to the students, even though they want it, right? What do you think would be a consequence of that if, te if teachers continue that uh, set of uh, belief, basically? Uh, if they continue being uh, mm. uh, continue being apprehensive in providing corrective feedback to the students, so what impact do you think that would that have on the students as a whole, but on their learning as well? Yeah, so that's, a, that's an issue we have to consider when we make decisions about whether to 
make corrections or provide feedback. I think, as I said, I want to repeat that um, pedagogical decisions should be based on research, not teachers' personal assumptions. Um, so for example, if research has demonstrated that feedback is effective and feedback can be an alternative to traditional grammar instruction, then we should do it, right? We, we should provide feedback. Um, I mean, I can't just say, oh, I'm, I just, I don't like it. Um, that's my personal opinion, right? Because um, I'm teaching a class of students and they rely on me for learning a second language. Um, I cannot make decisions only based on my personal preference. Twin teachers' beliefs or assumptions and students' expectations, there may be a consequence um, in, terms of, in terms of learning gains. And if feedback should be provided, um, given that feedback is effective, then teachers should definitely do it. And if students hold different opinions, on the other hand, and then teachers should identify learners' beliefs and uh, and do some learner training to change their beliefs if there's a there's a a, a disparity between uh, what is right and what is uh, what students believe. And also, is this uh, apprehensiveness on and belief of apprehensiveness uh, amongst the teachers? Is this something that uh, that you've based on your research that you yes across the board or is it some specific type of context where teachers feel like they don't feel like giving feedback and in other contexts they feel like giving feedback or is it across the board that they don't feel like giving feedback? Yeah, so um, this conclusion is based on, um, I can't say it's, uh, it's a uh, final conclusion. This is mm -hmm. based on my meta-analysis. Mm -hmm. So overall students are more um, positive about feedback uh, than teachers, uh, especially rookie teachers, teachers who are in their early careers. And I think they have concerns and uh, because of the lack of experience, they are worried about demotivating students, the harmful effects of feedback on students' uh, motivation or hurting students' feelings, right, by saying you did something wrong or by correcting them. Experienced teachers are more positive about feedback, um, about providing explicit feedback. So rookie teachers or inexperienced teachers are um, especially worried about providing um, explicit feedback and also immediate feedback. However, more experienced teachers are um, they're more positive, they are more supportive of uh, providing explicit feedback um, or a more balanced approach uh, instead of avoiding providing feedback. Back to your question, it is based on a research synthesis, a meta-analysis I conducted, which was based on the totality or all the empirical research, all the survey studies um, on learners and teachers' beliefs about the corrective feedback. So it's based on numbers, not my, my assumption. And I was going to say, these are these uh, fears that the teachers have. Is this something that's been uh, justified by the research or is this something completely unfounded, would you say? I would say it's unfounded. <laughs> yeah. uh, so uh, well, that's the point, right? Um, I don't know, actually. Yeah, so I understand. Yeah, so I have to, I have to think about your question again. Uh, you mean whether teachers' concerns are justified? Yeah, yeah. Uh, whether they're justified or not, if it's something. Whether there is uh, evidence to show that uh, learners are learners, students' feelings are hurt yes, by and being corrected. Yeah, like whether or not they're negatively impacted by the feedback they provide. Is it something that impacts them in a negative fashion, where they become mm -hmm. anxious? And are these things right. actually justified and shown through research, or is it not? It's, it's unfounded claims almost. No, the concerns are unfounded. Um, at least there's no evidence to show students' motivation um, is affected by receiving feedback. So, but that's an interesting question. Um, so we're saying it's, uh, there's no basis, right? No justification for such concerns um, because there's no evidence yet. 
Um, however, it does not mean uh, that their, their concerns are will be unfounded. Um, there's just no research. As far as I'm aware, there has been no research on whether uh, on the um, influence of feedback on the affective dimensions of learning on learners' motivation. Um, so I think that's an empirical question. Yeah. So yeah. So I guess it's just an assumption. Uh, students will be unhappy, right? They they may perceive feedback. Well, they actually they like to receive feedback, <laughs> but whether um, they'll be demotivated by receiving feedback is an empirical question that has not been investigated, as far as I'm I'm aware. And uh, you mentioned that the students like to receive feedback. Uh, based on your research, would you know if there's certain aspects of language that they prefer to receive feedback on more than others, or is it the same across the board that they want feedback on everything? Again, there's a lack of research. Um, the research only shows that they are in favor of feedback, uh, but what kinds of feedback they like to receive? What kinds of linguistic structures should receive feedback based on students' opinions has not been investigated in, in research. My meta-analysis based on, I mean, when I collected data for my meta-analysis, um, I found very little research uh, that uh, investigated uh, corrective feedback exclusively. I mean, most of the studies included in my meta-analysis targeted um, language learning in general, um, such as surveys, studies on teachers and learners' opinions on, on um, learning in general, whether they like grammar instruction or vocabulary. And some of the studies included a few questions on corrective feedback. So um, what I'm trying to say is um, overall, there is a lack of research on um, especially learners' beliefs about the corrective feedback. Um, again, um, at least in my meta-analysis, uh, there, there was no uh, empirical research on students' beliefs about what kinds of uh, linguistic targets should receive feedback. In my meta-analysis, there was only one study looking at students' preferences um, in terms of the kinds of feedback they, they liked. Um, but then that study involved international TAs at a, at a U.S. university. So the learners were not even the kind of typical language learners uh, involved in our in, in, in SLA studies. So this, this is sort of related. Um, you said there, there's no real empirical data, but I was wondering, you've had a chance to work around the world. You've worked in China and, and New Zealand and the U.S. And I was wondering whether you found a difference in those places, whether there are any, I guess, cultural differences between teachers' perceptions of corrective feedback in different parts of the world and, and learners' perspectives on corrective feedback in different parts of the world. Mm. Yeah, um, learner beliefs are indeed subject to um, their experiences and also teachers. I mean, teachers' um, beliefs are also influenced by their experience and the kind of training they received. Um, for example, based on um, our study when I was at um, Michigan State um, during my PhD study, we did a large scale uh, survey study on learners' beliefs on uh, grammar instruction and corrective feedback. And then we found that ESL learners, um, learners who were from um, other countries, um, they were less pos positive or more negative about receiving uh, corrective feedback and grammar instruction compared with foreign language learners, um, like uh, American students learning Spanish, French, or German. And so and, um, our interpretation is that um, because the students received a heavy dose of grammar instruction and corrective feedback back in their own countries. And so um, I guess they were a little bit fed up with it. And then, mm, okay. <laughs> so they were, um, they, they were less positive about feedback um, and grammar instruction. And also teachers, um, 
I remember um, Shouts, 1996, um, involved uh, teachers um, of of different languages, including ESL teachers and foreign language teachers. So not only ESL learners, but also ESL teachers um, are less positive about giving feedback um, compared with foreign language teachers and foreign language learners. So all this shows that um, beliefs and attitudes have to do with teachers and learners' um, background. Right. So, so that's really interesting, actually. So a learner who had been given a certain form of corrective feedback at home, when they, if they study abroad, they might want to actually receive a different type? Is, is that what you're saying? Right. Um, I, I think the fact that the learning setting, the instructional setting changed, had an influence on their beliefs and attitudes. Uh, so I guess... Um, to a certain extent, we can say that beliefs are dynamic and then their beliefs may change, right? Okay. As a result of the um, change in instructional settings. Um, and also there has been research that shows that learners' beliefs um, are indeed changeable through training, especially the kind of training where um, students um, are, um, and also teachers, um, engaging hands-on experiences in conducting a project, analyzing episodes of corrective feedback, or making reflections on their experience. Yeah, so hands-on experiences and uh, um, have been found to be effective in changing learners' and teachers' beliefs about the corrective feedback. It's really interesting. So yes, it's researchable. I mean, it's it's a question that can be investigated. Um, so if you want to change your students' beliefs and you should design an instructional package or a kind of treatment and to see and give them a pre-test and a post-test. Right, I mean, okay. Uh, to see whether their beliefs have changed as a result of the kind of treatment you provided them. Mm-hmm. And why do you think teachers should take learner beliefs about corrective feedback into account when they're teaching? Like, why is it so important? Well, there is evidence, although it's initial. I mean, I, I think there needs to be a lot of research, a lot of more research on whether um, beliefs are associated with learning gains. But there has been initial evidence that um, learner beliefs are indeed correlated with the effects of feedback. Um, for example, Sheen 2008 found that learners who were more positive about feedback benefited more from recasts. Recasts or explicit feedback, uh, metalinguistic feedback. I remember um, two kinds of feedback were provided to learners in that study. Um, but uh, overall, the study found that learner beliefs uh, were associated, were correlated with learning gains resulting from feedback. But there definitely there needs to be more research on this, on um, the extent to which beliefs are correlated with learning gains. Um, there have been only a couple of studies, including one study by um, Dr. Karchiva. Mm -hmm. okay. um, so my overall impression is, I mean, based on the research that has been done so far, is that um, learner beliefs are correlated with the effects of feedback when feedback is effective. Um, if feedback is not effective, then it doesn't matter. <laughs> um, and when feedback is explicit, when learners receive explicit feedback, their attitudes toward feedback Play, play the role uh, in whether they learn from feedback. Let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. You know, quality professional development is such an important part of the teaching industry, but it's surprisingly hard to come by. That's why I was so pleased to come across Learn Your English, a company providing online teacher education courses with a fresh perspective. My name is Erin, and I'm an English language teacher. After a decade in the classroom, I found myself teaching the same things in the same way. 
My learning seemed to have plateaued. I wanted to take charge of my learning, and I really like how the online Learn Your English courses don't prescribe anything. They motivate me to reflect on my teaching and propose tactics and ideas I hadn't considered. If you're a language teacher wanting to learn inside your busy schedule, I highly recommend their online courses on Thinkific. Head on over to lyenetwork.thinkific.com. That's lyenetwork.thinkific.com. Take control of your education. You won't regret it. Hi everybody, my name is Kimberly and I'm from Malawi. This is Teacher Talking Time to learn your English podcast. If I can just jump in just for a second, it's really interesting about that concept and then the EFL and ESL student. Have you seen which group is more... You said that the EFL student might not be... Depending, like they grew up, they used, were used to that kind of explicit feedback and then therefore on the one hand maybe more comfortable because they're used to it but on the other hand may not like it because they've been used to it so much but is there a link between explicit feedback and declarative or procedural knowledge uh registering in the students where if you're taking uh, an american student for example who's learning spanish we don't you know we don't grow up in our l1 learning that way generally speaking where students from other parts of the world may so we we learn more um on a procedural level or exclusively on a procedural level as opposed to a declarative level um is there research that points to explicit or implicit and procedural and declarative you mean in terms of um, feedback or in general this the type of corrective feedback that a teacher implements and is it is an uh, efl learner does it tend to develop more declarative knowledge or procedural as well? That's a good question. And that's a big question. Um, so whether, so for example, what kind of feedback leads to um, declarative or procedural knowledge, right? So theoretically, there should be an association between the kind of feedback we provide and the kind of knowledge students develop. Um, theoretically, explicit feedback should lead to more declarative knowledge and implicit feedback should benefit the development of procedural knowledge. Right. Very cool. Very cool. Thank you. That's great. Sorry to interrupt, guys. No, that's, that's fine. Like, <laughs> I wish we'd thought of that question. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good, yeah, that's a good question. Uh, moving on to something slightly different uh, you've also looked at uh, in addition to looking at beliefs learner beliefs and teacher beliefs you've also looked at corrective feedback timing uh, could you elaborate on that what the findings that you've come across based on your research uh, when would you think is the best time to correct the feedback if mm -hmm. there is the best time yeah so the timing of corrective feedback um, concerns the ideal time to provide feedback, right? It can yes. be operationalized in two ways. One is um, the distinction between um, whether feedback is provide, provided during um, an oral task or during task performance or after the task is completed, in which case we can call, uh, call them uh, online versus offline feedback. So if feedback is provided, um, during an oral task, while students are uh, performing a task, it's called an online task. And if it's provided in the post-task stage, after the task is completed, it's called, it's called offline feedback. Um, so that's one way to operationalize the timing of feedback. Another way is to distinguish uh, uh, immediate and delayed feedback, depending on whether feedback is provided at the beginning of an instructional cycle or um, at a later stage after learners complete some communicative practice. So there are two ways to um, uh, conceptualize the timing of feedback. And in both strength research, um, initial evidence shows that um, immediate feedback is more effective than delayed feedback, um, whether immediate, uh, whether the dis dis distinction refers to 
online versus offline feedback, or to whether um, feedback is provided at an initial stage or later stage of an instructional cycle. But it's a new area of research in corrective feedback. Mm. I mean, feedback research. So um, it's it's a topic that has a lot of potential. There has been only uh, some research. I mean, um, only a few studies have looked at the timing of feedback. I know like you have some upcoming research that's kind of looked at uh, age and working memory in relation, uh, not age necessarily, sorry, and language uh, analytic ability, I believe, and working memory was in relation to uh, the timing of corrective feedback. Uh, could you tell us more about it? Like, uh, does that, is that something that would impact the effectiveness of, of, uh, of the time when the corrective feedback is provided? And are there other factors that teachers should also consider when providing feedback? Uh, in terms of timing? Yeah, so um, speaking of the cognitive factors for the effects of feedback, there has been a lot of research. Um, so we can focus on working memory and language aptitude, although cognitive factors are not limited to uh, these two factors, I mean, working memory and language aptitude. So the general finding based on my meta-analysis is that I conducted meta-analysis on working memory, aptitude, um, and correctly feedback in general, not only timing. Um, so um, in general, feed, uh, working memory and language aptitude are more strongly correlated with the effects of explicit feedback uh, than the effects of uh, implicit feedback. Um, demonstrating that these two cognitive factors are conscious learning abilities, um, similar to the findings um, in, um, I mean, psychological and educational research. I mean, aptitude and working memory, they are similar to intelligence, right? Which refers to um, cognitive abilities for school learning. Uh, basically, they are conscious learning abilities. They are, um, they have stronger associations with the effects of explicit instruction than uh, with the effects of implicit instruction. And, um, recently, um, uh, there has emerged a new concept, which is called implicit aptitude, uh, which refers to the ability uh, to learn a uh, second language unconsciously. Um, actually, I'm guest editing a special issue for studies in second language acquisition. And the um, topic of the special issue is um, uh, implicit aptitude. Um, and in terms of feedback, um, we saw Yumas and um, Gisela Granina, they have conducted a large scale study investigating the um, so-called um, double dissociation hypothesis investigating um, whether uh, explicit and implicit aptitude um, are um, implicated or involved in explicit and implicit instruction or feedback respectively. So the idea is um, explicit aptitude is only involved in explicit feedback, uh, not in implicit feedback and vice versa, implicit aptitude is only involved in implicit feedback, but not in explicit feedback. And they found, their finding is the hypothesis was confirmed. So it's, there's initial evidence for that. So back to the question of the timing, the relationship um, between working memory um, and the timing of corrective feedback, based on my own research, um, if feedback is provided, especially if feedback poses a heavy processing load on the learner um, and then working memory plays a role. In situations where um, learners don't have a heavy processing load, such as when pre-task grammar instruction is provided, but not um, uh, receiving feedback, not providing feedback to learners, and then working memory is not important. So um, my overall um, impression based on the research, based on my observation, uh, 
uh, or based on empirical evidence is that working memory uh, plays a role, the role of working memory kicks in when learners have processing pressure. And uh, when there is, the, uh, in my study, uh, working memory was only correlated with the conditions where learners receive feedback. Working memory was not important when pre-task grammar instruction was provided, but learners were, didn't receive feedback or when learners received feedback after they completed uh, competitive tasks, but not, I mean, without receiving feedback. For language aptitude, I mean, the relationship between language aptitude and the timing of feedback, um, I'm going to talk my, about my own research. Um, I found that um, language aptitude, which is uh, measured, at, was measured as language analytic ability, was important only in conditions where um, learners um, did not receive grammar instruction. So um, when they um, received, I mean, in the task condition, task only condition, where they didn't get any grammar instruction, language analytic ability was important. Um, and also in the post-task condition, I mean, post-task uh, feedback condition where they received feedback after completing the task, um, language analytic ability was important. Would you say there's a reason in those situations that uh, there's this added importance to language analytic ability? Yeah, so um, language analytic ability plays a role when there is a lack of external assistance in the form of um, grammar instruction, for example. Mm -hmm. So uh, in those situations, learners have to rely on their own analytic ability to figure out grammar rules or to to learn um, morphosyntactic irregularities. Yes, I was just gonna say, um, you've also done some research into task-based learning as well. And I was wondering how you think corrective feedback might fit into task-based learning, if, if at all. There are many models of TBLT, right? Task-based language teaching and learning. In all models of TBLT, there's a role for focus on form or form focused instruction. Uh, so the general idea is some kind of grammar instruction is necessary, whether in the form of explicit grammar instruction or corrective feedback. So corrective feedback is a form of, is a kind of form focused instruction. Depending on the model um, you embrace, um, hmm. I mean, there are different, um, suggestions or recommendations in terms of how linguistic forms should be taught. Um, for example, based on Michael Long's TBLT model, uh, there should be no grammar instruction. And the only way to, um, the only, I mean, yeah, the most appropriate way to respond to um, uh, grammar related issues or linguistic forms um, to address linguistic forms is to provide feedback um, and uh, online feedback okay. during students' task performance um, because um, we cannot pre-select linguistic structures to teach and form-focused instruction has to be reactive um, after learners um, um, make errors and then we address errors. So feedback plays a crucial role in, in Long's um, TB, TBLT model. In um, Alice's model, which is called task-supported, uh, it's, it's, it's similar to PPP, right? So um, uh, grammar instruction is allowed as long as menial or, um, tasks are menial-oriented or meaning primary. And there is also a role for feedback and feedback helps um, proceduralize or, or solidifies the kind of declarative knowledge uh, of, uh, provided by pre-task grammar instruction. There's also um, Willi uh, Jane Willis' model, Willis and Willis, they wrote a book on TBLT. Um, in their model, feedback should be also should be provided. Um, grammar instruction, including Feedback, feedback is one kind of grammar instruction, should be provided in the post-task stage. 
Um, so it's like an inverted PPP. So instead of providing grammar instruction uh, during the pre-task stage, teachers should address linguistic forms after learners perform communicative tasks. Um, because if you teach grammar before they perform tasks, their um, task performance will be um, stilted. I guess they will keep thinking about um, the grammar you teach them. They'll be obsessed with grammar, with the kind of grammar you teach them during their task performance. So it will affect their fluency. Uh, it will undermine the um, uh, meaning primary principle of TBLT if you teach grammar in the pre-task stage. So um, the best time to address linguistic forms is during the post-task stage. So that's um, Willis TBLT model. Uh, it's like an inverted um, PPP. Do you have a model you prefer or? I don't have any preference. Um, I think whatever works is, is good. <laughs> yeah, I forgot to mention that in um, Robinson's model, the cognition hypothesis, there's also a role for feedback. Um, so there has been, um, uh, have been uh, at least several studies conducted based on that model. Uh, so the idea is that feedback should be provided in complex tasks instead of simple tasks. Right? So um, when learners perform complex tasks, they, uh, their cognitive resources are directed toward the target structure. Um, and they benefit more from feedback um, when they perform a, a complex task versus a simple task. Although based on my observation, um, actually is the opposite. I mean, based on evidence, research evidence, um, learners actually benefit more from feedback when they perform a simple task instead of a, a complex task. My speculation is um, it's too much. It's, it's too much for them to perform uh, a complex task at the same time uh, attend to feedback. There's a lot going on, right? They're overwhelmed. <laughs> so um, if, um, if there's no form focused instruction, if there's no feedback, the research uh, indeed has shown that uh, complex tasks complex tasks led to better performance in, in terms of CAF, complexity, accuracy, and fluency, mm -hmm. I mean, in terms of task performance. Um, however, if feedback is provided, then the task should really be simple um, because uh, learners have a lot of processing burden when they receive feedback um, while performing uh, a cognitively challenging task, it's too much for them. Is there, this might be unfair, <laughs> is there a way to define or to put a divider? What is a complicated task? What is a simple task? Yeah, yeah so there have been criteria to evaluate whether a task is simple or complex. Um, for example, you can simply ask learners, right? You can ask learners to do two tasks and ask them to rate whether a task is simple or complex based on a certain scale. So that's a subjective way of evaluating task performance. Oh, I'm sorry, uh, task complexity. As far as I remember, um, it can also be, I mean, task complexity can also be judged by asking experts to rate. So instead of learners, you can ask experts to rate, like applied linguists or teachers based on their experience, um, whether they think a task is simple or complex. A more objective way is to use eye tracking. Um, for example, if you hypothesize that uh, in a complex task, they'll pay more attention to a certain, um, I don't know, um, a certain place or a certain object um, during the task, then you can use um, an eye tracker to see whether indeed there is evidence to show uh, the hypothesized complex task is indeed complex. <laughs> yeah, but um, asking learners to rate is uh, the simplest way to evaluate task complexity. Yeah, I know that, that's a good question. Yeah, I mean. Yeah, just from the, 
teacher perspective, right? but would it come? Is it fair to say it comes down to cognitive load? Is that where we're looking at for complexity? If students are, and that's different for each student, obviously. So there, there isn't really a concrete answer here. But if they're focusing on doing right. one thing versus a, a variety of different things mm -hmm. at the same time. Yeah, I think there are two things. One is whether a task is theoretically complex or simple. So from our perspective, as the task developer, uh, we do things, we need manipulate certain features to make a task complex or simple, right? For example, um, typically, um, I mean, one way to um, opportunize task complexity is to increase the reasoning demands of a task. Um, for example, you can ask learners to um, perform a task uh, where they, um, uh, there are two options. One is to um, describe something, right? Um, describe uh, two cell phones, as what happened in Eugene uh, Kim's study in, in 2015. So I remember in, in that study, um, students were divided into two groups, uh, simple task and complex task groups. The simple groups, uh, I'm sorry, the, sim uh, the, the learners who were asked to perform the simple task were asked to compare, uh, no, just to, to, to describe um, two cell phones. And then in the complex task, they not only had to describe, but also had to make a comparison and then mm. make a decision. Like, um, so which one do you want, right? And so um, it's, it's cognitively more demanding to uh, not only describe, uh, provide information, but also to synthesize the information, to make a comparison, and then to make a choice. That's more demanding, right? Cognitively demanding mm. than simply um, describing something or telling a story. Yeah, so from, um, so we think, I mean, from our perspective, when we develop a task, we manipulate certain features to make a task simple or complex. However, that's from our perspective, right? We don't actually know whether a simple task is indeed simple or indeed complex. <laughs> and that's why there needs to be evidence. Um, it's just our assumption. We design the task that way, assuming that asking learners to make a comparison is more challenging than um, simply asking them to describe something right, or uh, certain objects. Um, so in order to know whether uh, a complex task is indeed complex, uh, a simple task is indeed simp uh, simple, we have to have evidence. And one way to collect evidence is simply to ask learners to rate, to rate the difficulty of a task. Like um, between one and 10, what do you think of the uh, difficulty of the task? Is it simple or? Yeah, so they normally they equated difficulty with complexity. That's That might also be problematic, right? <laughs> because difficulty might be a little bit different from complexity, right. but that's, that's what has uh, happened in the literature. Uh, so Dr. Lee, uh, just a final question. Uh, based on your extensive uh, teaching and research experience, what is one thing that you would say teachers should know about corrective feedback and providing corrective feedback in the classroom? Yeah, so um, can I say more, more than one? <laughs> you can, yes, it's up to you. You Several can elaborate. You can elaborate. <laughs> yeah, because um, it's hard to summarize everything in one sentence. Uh, or, yeah, um, I have several things to say. So I think one thing is um, one suggestion. I guess, is uh, provide feedback. Um, so feedback has been shown to be effective for language learning. And, and this is based on empirical evidence. Right? It's not hearsay or assumptions. There has been so much research on corrective feedback. Um, there have been uh, so many meta-analysis and also narrative reviews uh, showing that feedback is effective. So um, teachers should not hesitate to provide feedback. Um, and feedback can be an alternative to traditional grammar instruction, right, which is discouraged by a lot of experts, uh, especially those who 
um, like, like the idea of uh, cognitive language teaching. So in order to um, maintain a primary focus on meaning, um, I mean, instead of providing grammar instruction, uh, teachers can provide feedback. Um, yeah, so provide feedback and, um, and um, because um, feedback can, is effective and can be an effective alternative to traditional grammar instruction. And my second piece of advice is um, provide, I don't know, based on initial evidence, immediate feedback and online feedback. Um, because online feedback is more, from a learning perspective, it's more effective than offline feedback or post-task feedback. Um, in, in terms of whether, uh, I mean, the effectiveness for learning, if feedback's effectiveness for learning. Um, immediate feedback has been found to be more effective than delayed feedback. So if you delay feedback, and then uh, feedback is separate from, um, grammar instruction, supposing that you provide grammar instruction at the initial stage of the instructional cycle. So it's less, less effective it is provided, if it is provided at a later stage. I was going to ask, uh, would you say there's less contextual cues when the, uh, when the feedback is provided uh, in a delayed manner, like delayed feedback uh, compared to immediate feedback? You mean comparing delayed and immediate feedback, right? Yeah, in terms of the contextual cues, because you said it's oh, it's more effective when provided with uh, grammar instruction. Uh, mm. I'm assuming one of the reasons would be because there's contextual cues, instructions already been provided and some of that information is already posted. Right. So suppose you teach grammar, right? At the <laughs> beginning of an instructional cycle, you teach a new structure and then um, you explain grammar and then you provide feedback and there are two options. One is to provide feedback immediately after you teach grammar. One is to wait, to hold it until uh, sometime later, uh, like uh, one or two weeks later, um, thinking that some errors may disappear mm -hmm. or learners might get, uh, I mean, benefit more from feedback because they're more familiar with the structure. So that's a theoretical assumption, right? But mm -hmm. based on evidence, um, it seems that uh, immediate feedback is more effective than, um, than delayed feedback. Yeah, um, back to my suggestions. One thing I forgot to mention is that um, teachers should provide a variety of feedback instead of a single type as suggested by Roy Lister and uh, Leila Ranta in their 2013 article published in SSLA. Uh, so, because there's no single feedback type which is universally more effective than other feedback types. So, um, teachers should provide a variety of feedback, um, such as a hybrid feedback, right? Consisting of a prompt trying to encourage learners to self-correct, followed by a recast in the absence of self-correction. So that's one, one choice, right? So instead of favoring recasts or prompts, uh, one or the other, um, why not provide both? Um, uh, prompting learners first, uh, and then provide a recast, providing a recast if the prompt doesn't work. So that's one option. I think that's a very effective option. I've used a lot. Um, I mean, that in my recent research, of students received um, that kind of hybrid feedback consisting of a prompt followed by a recast. And also it's possible to provide a few cases of explicit correction initially and followed by recasts, which are more implicit later on, right? Or just provide some feedback initially and then stop. And, and, and if a few cases of um, feedback are enough and then you, we don't need to provide like a, a, a large dose of feedback. So we, um, we just want to thank Dr. Lee for taking time out of his very busy schedule to talk with us. He's actually given us a lot of possibilities for research in the future, which we're, as students, we're very appreciative of. Yes, I will say the same. 
And thank you for the again, thank you for the opportunity. It helps me clarify my thoughts. Uh, your questions are um, very insightful. I mean, I haven't thought about some of the questions before, and so um, it, it also helps me reflect on my experience, my findings, and and, and clarify my um, what I think should teachers should do. <laughs> yeah. Thanks a lot. We really appreciate it. We really appreciate yeah. you taking the time out to to do this interview. Definitely food for thought. Thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to Teacher Talking Time, brought to you by Learn Your English. Ready to take control of your education? You're in the right place. Teaching, professional development, learning. Expand your world with Learn Your English.